Okay, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, great. So, um, I'm I'm with I'm with Hannah. It's Kaplan, right? Yes, that's how you pronounce. That's how you pronounce it. Hannah Kaplan. She's an entrepreneur, and she's an entrepreneur in um, an industry that is up and coming in Texas. One that's near and dear to my heart, and near and dear to a lot of the people that listen to this podcast. Uh, and that's that's the subject of of oysters, specifically oyster farming. So, Hannah, again. Thanks for doing this Absolutely. and and providing the space to do this in. I appreciate it. I'm excited. Okay, so we typically start these off with with introductions, and um, so let's just hear about you and um, your you know growing up, your childhood. What got you uh, to this point in your interest in in farming? Yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in Houston. Um, and I went to college in Orlando, Florida to Rollins. Um, after that, I actually moved to Tel Aviv for a couple of years and I worked in real estate there. Um, and when I moved back to Houston, I started working in commercial real estate here as well, retail leasing. Um, and I quit that job maybe about three and a half years ago, actually, and moved to Aspen, Colorado which is currently where I live. I fly back and forth quite a bit. Um, I was working at a high-end hotel there when COVID hit and the hotel was closed. I was furloughed and I actually moved back home to Houston with my parents. And around this time was right when the Cultivated Oyster Mariculture program was being legalized. And you know, my dad had a friend that was doing it in Florida and brought it up to me and said, you know, this is interesting. Do you want to look into it? And, you know, I said yes. And I had nothing to do at the time. So um, we spent, um, you know, the first six months of COVID really just um, learning all the regulations, learning about the program. I don't think at that point the application was even out. Um, so it was really just us doing a lot of research. So personally, I have... All my background is in customer service and sales. Um, Mariculture was completely new to me. And um, I have learned everything just from reading, doing research, and talking to people in the oyster community. Everyone from farmers to scientists, everyone's extremely open about how they've gotten to where they are, you know, the processes they used to grow. Um, and just how to build it correctly. Um, so that's really how I got to this point. Um, I find oyster farming so interesting for quite a few reasons. The first is like it's a very active job. There's always something going on. And I like that that I'm not just sitting behind. Yes, a lot of my work is <laughs> at the computer behind a desk. Yeah. But on the days when I get to go out to the farm and work uh it's just so nice to be out in the water and physically doing things you can see the end product of um you know and i really liked the sustainability factor of it um you know i don't think wild oysters will ever truly be in competition with farmed oysters because i don't think farmed oysters can um, produce enough to overtake wild oysters yeah um, but it's definitely a nice compliment to the industry and uh, helps clean the bay up as well, um, and which I think is really needed in East Galveston Bay right now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely singles, uh, which are used. In, in, and I like that you say cultivated oyster mariculture because I always say oyster farming. But 
you know, we're we're trying to it's it's important or at least it was conveyed to me through the department that it's important to call it call it this and 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 instead of farming. And I never really understood why their reasoning was, but for me and I know I've already called it farming, but there there's a certain stigma with um aqua farming or aquaculture in in Texas because of the, the stigma just that, that that industry has in in general with with what has happened in the past whether it be salmon farming out west or the early days of shrimp farming here in Texas and so um you know there were some practices that weren't necessarily sustainable for those ecosystems but you know this and and, and I should say that now that those industries have cleaned up but this uh this industry is 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 and has always been sustainable and it's we were talking before we started recording it's additive to the ecosystem you know you're not taking anything away it's not detractive you're 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 putting in habitat just the structure alone is is habitat Uh, the oysters themselves are fulfilling their ecosystem services like Mm -hmm. the wild oysters are so it's beneficial to the bay while those while those oysters are in place so um and so just to bring this back around i think that that's maybe why the department wanted to call it something different than than farming um so i i believe you're probably onto something there yeah Yeah, (laughs) before i got into um oyster farming or cultivated oyster mariculture whatever you want to call it um you know i had watched documentaries on farm salmon and farm fish and it does you know, not really show them in the best light, that it's not really that great for the ocean, and um, introducing foreign species is, you know, hurting certain ecosystems, um, but this type of farming, I agree, is, is there is almost no downside to it, and Texas is very, very strict on the type of oysters that you can bring in. Uh, you're only allowed to bring in Texas genetic broodstock mm-hmm. so there's no risk of any foreign species coming in and invading or hurting an ecosystem yeah yeah you know they're all um the native eastern oyster and your your brood stock you have to send to another hatchery right now out of the state yes and they'll spawn that brood stock and give you the seed back so you're, you're taking oysters from an ecosystem they're being spawned elsewhere, but and those seed are coming right back to that same ecosystem where the parents came from. So, yeah, it's I important think that to, part is really cool because we actually um, we buy the oysters off of our distributor, Prestige Oysters, mm-hmm. um, about three hundred, and send them to the hatchery. So they're coming, you know, from reefs that um, are right in our area. Uh, so I really like that they're, you know, proven to grow there. That genetic species and that we can continue that and know that those are thriving in that environment yeah and you made another good point um you know that that this that farming is not necessarily competitive right now with the um public harvest Mm -hmm. and 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 it's and it's not and it's how i would just i would just add that it, it it is possible that it could be scaled up to where if, if, you know, eventually there may be opportunities for some participants in the public fishery to transition to um, some some type of farming, whether that be in cages like you're doing, mm-hmm. or on bottom 
uh, through through lease systems. And you know, if you go, you go look out west and look at how you know they still do, and even on the east coast, they'll they'll still do dredging and they'll they'll still do on bottom culture. But it's it's with it's either on leases or it's um, on, on systems where they're doing spat on spat on shell and then scattering that shell out across the bay bottom and then coming back later and then pulling them up through with their dredgers at the rig. So, anyways, me personally, I would like to uh, hopefully would we'll see a a shift in the transition from um, a a a. a a way that we consume oysters in that we would demand the thing that is more sustainable for, for the base systems rather than something that is, is mostly um, just, you know, taking away from, from the base systems, but that's going to take time. Yeah. And I think people need to realize that and, and, and be patient as that happens, especially if you look at other coastlines and how they made their transition. Um, it certainly wasn't an overnight deal. And we're only um, this, this August will be two years into, you know, the the two years from when it started. When it was legalized, yeah. Um, so what what point? August of 2020 was when the rules were passed um, by the department that started all of this um, by the commission. And at what point did you guys say, okay, we're we're going in, we're gonna we're gonna do this? Do you remember when is was it after those rules were passed or was it before waiting for the commission to, um, you know, pass, pass the set of rules that allowed the program to exist? You know, I don't think there was like a specific point when we said, okay, like this is something we both 100% want to go do. It, you know, we just spent so much time talking to people and working on it that it just naturally felt like it was moving forward and we were doing the right things we needed to do. Um, so there was no point where we were really like, let's go for it, you know? And really? We, we really just just kept working and working on it. And we so it just evolved had, into yeah. like... You know, I have a very entrepreneurial spirit, spirit. I've always wanted to start my own business and be my own boss, you know? Working commercial real estate, I made my own schedule. I was used to, you know, not really having a direct boss. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the type of work that I'm, I'm used to. Um, and actually, if you had told me three years ago I'd be running an oyster farm, I probably would have told you that you would be absolutely insane because I grew up Jewish, or I am Jewish, and um, I grew up kosher, so not eating any type of shellfish. And... Um, really not understanding the shelf in, shellfish industry at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually only tried my first oyster about a month ago when we started harvesting. <laughs> yeah. And I do really like them. Um, and it's, you know, spurred me to go out and eat more oysters from the north and the west to kind of compare the taste and see what the market has to offer so that I can understand um, what I want from my product right. and what restaurants will want from my product. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we'll get to the harvest in a second. I'm looking forward to hearing from that, but, uh, did you take it straight from the cage and out there you're like, y'all are going to harvest and you just get, did you do it then? Or did you, did, how, how'd that process work? How was your first oyster consumed? Um, 
legally, I don't think we can take them <laughs> off the road. <laughs> so I gotcha. don't quite want to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I could say I that guarantee our you. first harvest, uh, we took them over to the distributor and um, he shucked them at his restaurant at Pier 6 in mm-hmm. San Leon. Yeah. And um, that was when I tried my first oyster. And our first harvest was in the beginning of May. Uh-huh. So um, since then, I've had quite quite a few oysters, quite a few of my own. You know, I've had parties for people and um, had a lot of my friends over to taste them. And really, the consumer consumer um, needs to understand that this is a different product as well. The consumers and the restaurants uh, have to be educated that this is a farmed oyster. It is grown differently, and it is a little bit more desirable for the restaurants because we can harvest at the two-and-a-half-inch size yeah. rather than the three-inch size that the wild oysters um, are required to be. But the feedback from restaurants so far has been really, really great. You know, a lot of chefs love that it's a Texas oyster. You know, everyone's always proud to be Texan, uh-huh. so that definitely Absolutely. plays into it. And um you know, so far we've had them at just a couple of restaurants in Houston, um, State of Grace and La Lucha, um, as well as uh, Blue Horizon Seafood Dealer. Now, when they receive them um, through the distributor, how long are you getting any feedback on how long they're they're lasting? And and are they working through them for you know through Prestige and then to you for for more? How does that process work out? So. Um, Right now, we are basically harvesting around 2,500 to 3,800 a day, depending on a variety of factors. Um, and we then take them over to Prestige twice a week, and Prestige then distributes them out to the restaurant. So once I sell them to Prestige, you know, I really have, I don't have that much control over where they go. I don't really know how many a restaurant orders or how long their order will go for. Uh, but Prestige has done an amazing job. Um, Roz Halili runs it. Yeah. And he's done a great job of um, making a marketing push for these farmed oysters uh, to restaurants in Houston. Um, and, of course, you know, Pier 6 is his restaurant. So having it there first uh, was was a huge, you know, deal for us as yeah. well. Um, so... I'm not quite sure how they're buying them, if it's a weekly bit, weekly kind of thing or, or what. Um, but we're still harvesting pretty limited numbers um, right now. So, God, I think our biggest week was probably 15,000, which to the industry is still a pretty small yeah, amount. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what made you guys decide to go through an established distributor rather than going through the process of becoming one of your own? And having direct to consumer. Yeah, so we um, really wanted to focus on the farm based on the fact that neither myself or my dad, who um, started this up with me, uh, has any experience in the mariculture industry. So we wanted to put our gear in the water, get oysters in the water, and, and see how everything acts. Because you can do all the research, talk to all the people, but... Everything is so site-specific mm-hmm. that until you put those oysters in the water, you just have no idea what's going to happen. 
um, and we leased 9.74 acres, so it's a pretty large lease. Um, and our focus over the next couple years is really just building out the entire farm, figuring out how many can we produce and what do we need to get to that production level. Um, and I think it'll take at least a couple years to truly get all of our systems working correctly. Um, and, I, you know, at one point I would love to have everything under one roof, um, a hatchery, a processor center, you know, extra land to grow. Um, but I, we're, we're just not at that point yet. Yeah. And figuring out the farm aspect takes up a lot of time, just the logistical issues and gear issues. And, you know, it's hard to plan your next spawns. Um, everybody's kind of competing for seeds. So mm -hmm. getting the spawn set up and everything like that, it's, it's a lot of work to do on the farm that we really thought having a distributor who is already so well known in the market, you know, basically every restaurant that sells oysters in Houston gets some from Prestige already. He has this network that he's built up over many, many years and he's very well respected in the community. Um, so we thought it would just be better for us and, you know, a distributor to be um, selling that and making that marketing push yeah. um, from his side. Got it. Got it. So, uh, you know, you, you talked about getting the farm set up and going through all of the processes. Let's talk about the process, the permitting piece of it, at yes. least. Uh, you know, this was new for Texas. It was new for the Parks and Wildlife Department. And I think that, you know, they, they tried their best to look at what worked in other states, what didn't work, and kind of develop a framework around that. And you know, some of the things they had control of, some of the things they didn't because there's so many other state agencies involved. So do you mind just kind of walking through what that process was like for you and uh, the goods, the bads, the uglies, and <laughs> just lay it out for, for those that are kind of curious as yeah, to na how to navigate that? Um, so before we could even start the permitting process, we had to do um, a site selection and that itself took probably about six months because we looked at um, Copano Bay, Matagora Bay, and several sites in East Galveston Bay um, before we narrowed it down to our one site. And then once we picked the site, we then had to do um, sonar side scan data as well as uh, a large amount of soil sampling. Um, within the site and then within a 500-foot buffer of the site. Um, so that took, you know, about six months to really get all that done. And then once that was done, we filled out the application and submitted it to Texas Parks and Wildlife, and that gets you a conditional permit. And what they want in that application is essentially an overview of every single little thing in your business plan, you know, how you plan on tumbling, how do you get to the site? Um, what gear are you using? You know, I created a list of 50 types of gear and pictures of it to include in the application so that they know exactly what's in the water and where. Mm -hmm. um, and once I submitted that to Texas Parks and Wildlife, it really didn't take long to get the conditional permit. I would say it was a couple weeks maybe. Um, they did come back with quite a few comments because I was the first application in. Um, so, you know, they 
actually ended up changing the application a little bit after I submitted it um, for future applicants because they weren't getting the correct answers. They weren't wanted to their yeah. questions, mm -hmm. so they had to fine-tune it a little bit more. Um, but once I got the temporary permit, um, I went out to the Coast Guard, the Army Corps, um, Texas General Land Office, and the TCEQ um, to get permits from them. And that process uh, probably took about 10 months. Um, all of the agencies were incredibly helpful and excited about the program, but they also had to edit some of their forms to get the right questions asked um, for their permitting. So I actually spent a lot of time on the phone with Texas Parks and Wildlife and, you know, for example, the Army Corps on a conference call together so that they could both be on the same page. Of, yeah what needed to be on the application and whose rules are you going to defer to. Um, so it was a lot of back and forth with all those agencies. Um, and once I got all of those permits completed, um, I went back to Texas Parks and Wildlife to get the final permit. And that really only took about a week because they had been such a big part of the entire process. They had basically seen everything that I had submitted to the other agencies yeah, yeah. already. Um, and at that point, it was becoming very stressful because um, throughout this whole process, you know, we had sent oysters to hatchery. You know, we had to start a spawn. You mm -hmm. know, it takes about six to nine months, depending on the spawn, to get the oysters to us. So we had to work on that while we were working on our permitting process. And you're probably buying gear and, and stuff. Exactly. And, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it ended up being, um, you know, we had oysters growing at a hatchery in Auburn. And they were grown out in Alabama at a farm there. Um, and so we got our permit about two weeks, our final permit, two weeks before the oyster seed was ready. And what and size did they nursery it out to? We bought them you? at R6. Okay. Um, and then, so we had a week to install the farm before that. So we had our farm installers kind of just on hold uh, for like almost two months, I want to say. You know, we had to wait for a week of good weather and we couldn't put a single piece of gear in the ground until we got that final permit. Um, so at the very end, it worked out. Everything fell into place. It worked out perfectly, but it was definitely a lot of stress at the end yeah. there where, you know, hey, we need... We need to get our permits because we have this seat that's supposed to be coming pretty soon and we need to get our site built out. And um, yeah, so I would say overall the whole process took about 10, 11 months. And, and just to go back, R6, it's six millimeter, I assume? Yes. Okay. Just want to make sure that we're speaking the same language. Um, so that's people pretty... do buy them smaller, but yeah. R6 is kind of the largest size that you can buy from a hatch, uh, grow out farm. And we decided to go for the larger size because there's less risk yeah. of them dying once you put them in the water again. Well, you know, some, some facilities um, will put them in a flopsy until, you know, a nursery floating up well or system until uh, quite large, you know, half inch, three quarter inch sometimes. Was there, have y'all give any thought to having your own? nursery or is going back to what you said earlier just do the farm piece now and get that going and get that established and then looking at how we can we can expand looking down the road i mean yeah in several years i would love to have a hatchery where we could have more control over the 
timeline of when we're putting the seed in the water and um, not have to really compete with other farmers to get that time slot. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is a huge undertaking. You know, that's a much more scientific process, I would say. Yeah. Um, And we would definitely need to hire the right people to come in and uh, help us with that. But you know, ideally, yes, I would yeah. love to have that at some point in the future. <laughs> um, but the thinking about going through that permitting process just gives me a headache. Right, so. right. And, you know, that's, that's, that's definitely, it's a, it's a, well, you've, you know, actually you've, you've done this, um, you've done the primer. I really feel like you could fairly, you know, easier than you think do the, the land piece yeah. uh, in the permitting for, for that. Um, so don't, don't uh, be too scared about it because i think you could handle it but you know de- definitely need that expertise um you know your algologist you know your 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 hatchery guy your broodstock guy gal what have you um i mean it takes some outside expertise to bring in you can't just start that doing that right. stuff your own it requires some level of training and experience so so you got the permit in and what month of? It was. I, I guess it was, was twenty one September of twenty twenty one. Yes. Yeah. Two weeks later, you got the seed. We did. Yeah. yeah. And were your how long were your were your you know your equipment was available to you? I guess you know you had your pylons in the water. Walk through when you put your equipment in. What kind of equipment it 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 is and. Um, Maybe what what has worked? What have you had to change or did it all just you you picked the right gear and it's worked out great for that site? I wish I could say all the gear (laughs) has worked out great. Um, But that is the one part we are really having issues with. Um, So we actually hired uh, two brothers from Florida that kind of specialize in installing farms, uh, oyster farms. Uh, and had them come down to, they drove down to Texas with all their gear, you know, scuba gear, um, all the winches they need and everything to put up the ropes. Um, And we went out in the boat um, each day for probably about six hours. And um, one of the brothers, he's a, a big scuba diver, so he was the one that would put on the scuba gear and get in the water and actually install the anchors into the ground. Um, And so currently we have uh, four 100-foot rows of um, lines in the water. And those are, most of them are Zapco storm lines. Um, We are using some galvanized chain as well because um, of supply chain issues getting Zapco storm lines at that time. Um, and so, <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, it's like, you know, it, the, the, the gear piece is always a question. Yeah. Uh, not, not maybe fully understanding or realizing the energy at your site. And so yes. it, there's a lot of, I'm sure, trial and error and, and how that works out. Yeah. So, so we, um, are actually permitted, uh, like I talked about, you have to, tell Texas Parks and Wildlife every type of gear that you want to use. So we're actually permitted to use two types of gear, oyster grow cages as well as inner moss cages. And oyster um, grow are the Australian long line. No, oyster grows are the flip oyster cages. Oyster grows are the flip cages. So yeah, it's, um, sorry. They yeah. have, 
They come in three, six, and eight bag cages, mm -hmm. um, and they sit underneath the water column. So just to let the listeners know, you have a, a large basket container, and within that container, you can slide in your your smaller baskets yes. that contain your, your oysters. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the intermoss bag system is a floating bag system, and we connect those to the lines using Zapco Storm Clips. Do they float vertically or horizontally? Horizontally. Okay. Uh, until they get very full, and then they start to float vertically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and unfortunately, we've had very, very bad weather, very high winds um, over the past almost All year spring, since, yeah. Yeah, it's been terrible. So what happens is it's so strong, it actually breaks the clips off of the bags. So the lines aren't breaking, but the clips are breaking off of the bags, and then the bags float away. Yeah. <laughs> so um, actually the first month we put them in the water, we had a huge storm come through. Every single bag came off the line. And we were really, really lucky. We found all of them because of the way they float. They usually float to um, an area called Goat Island near our site, which is actually protected state land. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we just use our boat to get there and walk along the shore. And we found every single bag. Some of them had, you know, some holes in them where some oysters had clearly come out. But we did recover all the bags. And since then, we have tried... A variety of different things to stop our gear from falling off the line and we have not really been able to fix that issue completely we're now going to try um, two other different types of systems to try to make them more secure in the line so it's not so much the ropes tethered between your poles or your anchors it's the clips attaching to the ropes is mm -hmm. where you're having the issues yeah and we are using three which is um, more than you know most farms just use two mm -hmm. and there are a few farms that i've heard of that use three and that usually has solved all of their problems yeah unfortunately it just hasn't for us um so we're looking at sepa clips and some um some different ropes with very high break strengths and uh, loading strengths that we can kind of wrap around and use different clips to attach them to the lines so we're trying a variety of different things to fix that issue right now. We actually just lost 40 bags of oysters. Um, a storm came through in the middle of the night at 60, 70 mile per hour winds, and we had about 800 bags out there. Mm -hmm. um, 100, about 150 fell off the lines, and we recovered about 100. So we were really lucky to recover that much. Um, but that's a problem that we're, we focus on every day, um, and we have not quite figured out exactly how to fix that yet. Well, that's, you know, that's the number, what should be the number one concern for everybody going into this and, you know, finding that right gear for your site or finding the right site for the type of gear mm -hmm. you want to use either way you look at it. And, and yeah, it's a challenge, and you can't, I mean, sometimes there's just nothing you can do when a cell pops up in the you know out in the middle of the bay and like you say 67 mile an hour you have no time to go out there and mm -hmm. sink your lines or whatever you want to do to um, abate something that's coming in so sometimes you can't do anything um, yeah so you, on the plus side you know the water over there is absolutely perfect for growing oysters they have grown way faster than we expected 
and very, very healthy. We've had almost zero natural mortality. Um, so the good part is the oysters are really happy there. Yeah. And we just have a lot more weather issues that we did not um, really predict. You know, we knew we weren't very, very protected. Um, you know, we are by Port Bolivar, which is a barrier island, so we are somewhat protected. Um, but we are still, you know, in the bay where there's a lot of wave action and the intercoastal um, and all of that. So we're definitely so, less protected than a lot of oyster farms. How far, just for the listeners in there in East Goat, how far off of Goat Island are you? Uh, 1,200 feet, which is the minimum amount. Uh, you have to be at least 1,200 feet away from the shoreline. Correct, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, you don't see that in some other states. You don't see that level of restriction, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what is really beneficial uh, for some farmers in some other states is, is the landing, having the shoreline access, and being able to walk out from your property to your cages. Um, we don't have that yet in, in Texas, but there's, and I understand the concerns and the reasons why. Um, personally, I feel like it's a broad brush painted across the whole thing, and and going back to the site selection there i feel like there's some locations to where your cages closer to the shoreline are actually going to benefit the shoreline and you're not going to be doing anything detrimental to 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 the shoreline but that's the way i mean the way it is now but maybe that can be that can be improved there's like i think like working the department working with those other agencies on your permitting process and working out the tweaks and figuring things out um I think that's that that type of um, that type of coordination is going to continue in the future, and Definitely. with that, maybe this whole program could be shaped into something that um, you know work out all the kinks and figure out what works for everybody. But you know, you and 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 uh, Lomax there and Copano are the pioneers. You know, you guys are the ones braving those rough waters and figuring things out for everybody else that's wanting to go into this. Um, so I think you guys deserve a lot of recognition and credit yeah. for, for, for um, you know, taking the lashings that maybe the rest of us won't have to, won't have to take. But um, so your site, 1,200 feet off of Goat Island, and it grows oysters very quickly. When was so you you stocked in in late in the in the early fall of twenty one, mm-hmm. and you had your first harvest in May of twenty two. Yes, so that's about seven months. That is remarkable. It is. It's pretty two crazy. and a half inch oyster in seven months. You know, our first harvest was one hundred and eighty seven oysters, so it was nothing you but, know completely still. overwhelming. <laughs> But, you know, one day we just, we were tumbling them and we start looking at them closer and measuring them. And we said, hey, you know, we've got not a significant number, 187, but we've got 187 oysters that, you know, could be ready for market. Um, and called Roz over at Prestige and he said, let's, let's get them on the menu tonight at Pier 6. Um, so that was the first harvest. Um, and since then, we've harvested about 20,000 oysters. Um, we were not expecting to harvest so soon. So over the past month, we've really had to ramp up um, quite a few things in our business. You know, we had to buy enough refrigeration storage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we hired two more employees this month. Um, 
we're looking for another boat, you know, we need one yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, but unfortunately, you use a lot bo- of the stuff boat is market's back-ordered. crazy too. So. Yeah, the boat market's absolutely insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that kind of hindered us uh, at the beginning of May to, to not really harvest more than that because yeah. we didn't have the manpower. Um, but now that we have uh, four employees on site, um, we're doing about 15000 a week almost now, uh, which is really great for us. It's, it's now how many, how many, how many do you have in the water? How many oysters roughly do you? Uh, roughly, mm-hmm. we probably have about 500000 left. We planted 560000 okay. but especially after this last uh, storm where we lost 40 bags that were mostly ready for market. Yeah. Um, I would say closer to 500,000. And um, you have 9.6 per minute, acres per minute, but um, you're only using a small portion of that, I assume, right now. So how much are you are you actually using for that 500,000 or 560,000? You have them on no, an acre and a half? I've never done the math on exa- – it's about one-fourth of the site, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and we're planning on building out the rest of our site, um, actually within the next month or two. Okay. Um, we just, at the beginning, you know, we weren't ready to build out the whole site and we wanted to put the lines in and see if this is how we really wanted to build our site. And Mm -hmm. I have actually made changes to our site layout since we built it, um, and just got an amendment approved by Texas Parks and Wildlife for that. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, spread out the lines a little bit more to give the boat more room to come through, um, and everything like that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty good layout. I'm, I'm happy with it. And some farms, uh, no, obviously not in Texas, but on other coastlines, you know, they're, they're producing or can produce about half a million per acre. Is is that the number that you guys had planned on, or what was the max? You know, at your nine point six, what were, what is your goal peak production? Um, you know, if we could do like ten, twenty million, that would be amazing. I'm not sure if we can get to that number using the gear that we are currently using. Um, you know, we'd have to move to some sort of yeah. gear type like oyster grow cages. Well, that's um, close. Which that... we have tried on our site, but we've had issues with them fouling like so quickly within a week that um, we didn't really have the manpower at the time to put more of those in yeah. um, and make sure that they were staying clean enough and desiccating them um, compared to the intermust bags, which we can easily just switch out or clean much easier by leaning over the side of the boat yeah so walk, walk, just walk through well real quick let me close up the stocking capacity you know if you're able to do uh, half a million per acre and get two harvests per year or almost two harvests per year you're right in line mm-hmm. with, with that uh, goal of that nine to ten million for sure um okay so the oyster grow cages in comparison to your bags, you know, the oyster grow, um, you can flip, you know, you can flip them, right? Mm-hmm. So they're exposed out of the water. They're floating on top of the water so you can desiccate, air dry, the biofouling. Whereas with the bags, you're actually just moving the oysters um, into another clean bag, I assume. Is that? 
Sometimes. Um, so we are we have to do a lot of splitting the bags because we do have to keep the density of the bag low enough that the oysters have room to grow and breathe and so that um, you know, it's not putting too much strain on the clips. When mm -hmm. it gets too heavy, it starts to kind of go underneath the water where you almost can't even see the bag. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was the question? Well, just, you know, what's, what are you finding out is, is easier, is easier to work? I mean, it seems like the oyster grow, but it seems like just, without thinking too much into it, just being able to flip something over and let it air dry and then flip it back would be, would be easier. But I think what you're saying is the oysters are growing so fast. You're having to sort and cull constantly. Mm -hmm. So it, what has worked for you is just the, the bags yes. because you're having to move them and handle them anyways. Correct. Yes. And, um, you know, we, we have built some bags with floats on the bottom so that we can flip them to desiccate them. The problem is that we have so much wave action. They don't really stay when we They're flip staying them. wet regardless. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't really tried to flip the oyster grow cage um, yet, but I'm thinking it's going to have a similar problem. Um, and there's really nothing we can do about that. You know, we've tried to kind of plan out okay tomorrow and the next day are good weather where the winds aren't going to be too high we can go out and try flipping these bags um, but it's just especially when we have 800 and something bags in the water now it wasn't really working so splitting them and then taking the dirty bags to shore and cleaning them there to reuse is, is really what has been working for us um, and while we're doing splitting, we also do our tumbling. So you're getting kind of two things done in one. So you're taking everything, you're um, pulling some so many bags out, load them on the boat, take them to the shoreline where your tumbler is, mm -hmm. and tumbling, you know, pretty much every day, I would assume, uh, a certain proportion of them, yes. and so, uh, splitting, sorting, that sort of thing, and then taking them back out. Has there been any part of that process that hasn't, that was, you know, like a, a wake up call to you? Like, did you think that it, you would have to be doing that so routinely? Do you think it was going to be so hands on? I did. Yes. Um, you know, I had, I had just heard from so many people and I visited farms before and seen the operations and, um, seen how heavy man manual labor this really is. You know, I'm, um, not really able to work the gear myself anymore. When they were little babies, I could still lift the bags and help. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the bags are almost 80 pounds now. Um, so the guys that are working on, you know, working the gear are working really, really hard. I have a lot of respect for them. Um, we did think that we would have to come to shore, you know, about five days to tumble, which is what we're doing now um, in order to get through uh, you know, enough of the oysters so that we can give them at least one or two tumbles before we send them to harvest. How long is your, the boat, the boat ride back and forth to the tumbler? So it's about seven minutes. It's 0.95 nautical miles. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you have access someone's land or your land or how does that, how did that work to get that shoreline 
access? Did you just work out a deal with the property owner? Yes. So we rented a boat slip. It's actually a covered boat slip um, with some land in the back and then an uncovered boat slip next to it for a second boat once okay. we get one. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we lucked out finding that space because on Port Bolivar, there really is not that many um, boat docks for rent or land for sale that's on the water. Uh, so it was very hard to find. I, I, I took about a year of searching for me to find that boathouse. Yeah. Um, and then we also have a warehouse that's uh, on Port Bolivar where we keep all of our gear. And that's where we go to build the bags and um, really do all of that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize how much labor goes into the preparation of the equipment you're actually going to be deploying. But yes. there's a lot it of days. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to build one inner moss bag. Yeah, that's an incredible amount of time when you add that up. <laughs> and we've got about 830 in the water yeah. right now. <laughs> and that's, you know, right now all of our bags in the water are 18 millimeter size because of the fact that the oysters have grown larger. Um, but other than that, you know, we still have our four millimeter bags, our nine millimeter bags. So, you know, we've we've got several thousand bags right now and we're yeah. just going to have to continue to expand. Just three bag, three, you're going through three phases, three, three sizes. Yeah, you know, get. we've tried 16 millimeter bags and I think we have um, some six millimeter bags that are kind of, you know, um, in between. But what's really worked for us is the four, the nine and the 18. Do you have your brood stock on site or are you just going to continue just to purchase brood stock from uh, Prestige when you need to go send them off to be conditioned for spawning? We're going to continue buying them from Prestige um, because otherwise we would have to obtain a brood stock permit mm -hmm. and go out there and find the oysters ourselves. Um, which seems like a pretty hard task when you're not when you don't have the right materials to go look for wild oysters and they need 300 of a certain size that they know are healthy and, yeah. you know, all of those requirements. Um, currently, we're growing triploid oysters. I was about to go into that next. Yes. So I don't believe, you know, you can even get a spawn from a triploid oyster. You know, if we're growing diploids right now, we may be able to have sent it to a hatchery, but that's getting a little bit more scientific than I'm yeah, you know, yeah. aware of. Um, so that the, you sent diploids over, uh, to the hatchery and mm -hmm. they s crossed it with the tetraploid to give you your triploids. Um, that, that, <laughs> what's interesting is, you know, the tetraploids, um, anyway, better not, not say quite Texas not. genetic yeah. <laughs> stock. Yes. There's, um, Texas Parks and Wildlife has a full genetics, um, biosecurity protocol, um, that the hatcheries have to work with. So there is, you know, some flexibility. I don't remember the exact legal language, but um, the tetraploids have to be uh, a certain They have to be type. golf. They have to be golf tetraploids. But, you know, uh, from, from my experience, those golf tetraploids, the first development of them, I could be wrong, but I was in the mix at the time. And um, anyways, there's likely... Way back, many, many generations ago, they came over from the East Coast, or they were blended with East Coast. Oh, so, um, Genetically, the Texas oysters are very similar to Eastern oysters. 
Yes, yes, yeah. And in fact, the, the you know the guys at, at Palacios uh, Marine um, Research Station, you know they've they've done uh, pretty extensive genetic uh, um, testing or an, an analysis of our, our Gulf oysters and. And right now, that I mean, the department's playing it on the safe side. You know, you have Corpus Christi Bay in south is considered a different genetic strain okay. from um, north of Rockport and Aransas Bay is kind of a, a mixing zone. And um, that that northern strain seems to extend all the way past Louisiana and into, into Mississippi. I mean, they're all the same. And then, I mean, it's all the same species across the entire Gulf and all the way up the Atlantic seaboard. But, um, you know, as we do with uh, spotted sea trout or, or flounder or anything else that, that we, we propagate and either farm or do for stock enhancement, we, we're trying to keep things as genetically pure as, as possible. So, um, you know, they're doing the best they can not to do anything to harm the natural environment. So that's, that's why those rules are pretty stringent. And yeah. I see why. I, I, at first, you know, I was like... A little confused why they wouldn't allow triploids to be, you know, not Texas genetic stock. Um, but seeing how the gear falls off the line and how the oysters really yeah. can't escape, I I do understand why they want those strict regulations yeah. in I mean, place. Triploids most don't spawn. Right. Some can <laughs> and will, but the 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 percentage that can and will is so small. It's it's almost statistically impossible for them to have any effect on the on the natural yeah. in, environment so um anyways y y y using triploids well having a seventh month grow out to to um harvest size is a testament to triploids i mean you you wouldn't have achieved that with with the diploid so um they're not putting any energy into gamete production so it's all going into growth and in the shell and uh, you're able to get almost two harvests a year by using those. So, you know, what we need um, by late 2027, five years from now, is a Texas hatchery yes. producing a, uh, a seed stock for the farms. And we were kind of talking beforehand, it's a big jump for somebody like you or Brad Lomax or anyone else speculating getting into this industry and, and investing the hatchery piece because as we alluded to earlier not only do you need that scientific expertise but just the infrastructure and the equipment required uh, to run a facility is you know it's a lot of capital investment mm -hmm. and it's a big gamble right now it's a big gamble setting something up when you only have two farms potentially a couple more coming in the next year and and um you know is that enough demand to to um justify starting up a texas hatchery but i i think it is enough because both of the farms in operation really want to plant as many oyster seed as possible you know um I forget how many acres Brad has, but it's... it's Almost the same as yours. Yeah, it's a pretty eight. significant yeah. amount. Yeah. They, they really want to produce a lot of oysters as well. Um, so I personally think the demand is there. It's just that we're I think we're both so focused on the farm part right now, and all the agencies are focused on getting everything right on that side too, that mm -hmm. um, they just haven't put as much work into the hatchery part. Um, but we've been very lucky that we've been able to get um, 
spawns going with hatcheries out of state because it is very competitive with all of the um, farms trying to get seed, yeah. especially around the same time. You know, most of the seed that they produce, you're going to get between around this time to October. And then the hatcheries are, almost have an off season um, because they can't operate as well in the colder weather. Right. Um, but we are planning three spawns this year, actually. Um, so the first one is running quite late. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure when we'll receive them, but we were going to get um, a million triploids. They were supposed to arrive a month ago, but the spawn has not even really um, happened yet. Mm -hmm. And we have a second spawn going on right now with the University of Mississippi. Uh, they've done a great job. That spawn went really well. They're being transferred to the grow-out facility um, pretty much any day now. And those are actually going to be diploids. So we did want to try them just to diversify a little and, and see what works. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you really don't know until you put them in the water. Um, so we are trying diploids out. Those should be arriving probably end of July. And then we have a third spawn planned in October, and those will be triploids again. Yeah. Um, and so we're hoping for three million. You know, it might end up being two million. Um, but that's our goal this year to plant. And all of the Texas farmers are actually pretty much going in on every spawn together right now. Mm -hmm. So the first spawn that we did that we planted in October, um, Brad Lomax actually planted that same exact seed from the crop. Um, but he planted about 1.5, I believe. You know, we wanted to plant a smaller amount so that we could really figure out our processes yeah. um, before becoming too overwhelmed with too many oysters, which I uh, seeing how we're harvesting so fast, I think that was the correct decision so that we can get all yeah. of our harvesting procedures down now. Right, right. Um, and then there's also a third oyster farmer who uh, just, he just finished all of his permits and he is uh, waiting for some from this upcoming spawn as well. And he's out of um, Palacios. Is that the is that the one that's down? I think so. Yes. 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 Appreciate. Yes, David. Yep. Yep. So he and I can only use um, one type. Of yeah, y'all got to use a northern mm -hmm. Texas strain. And then Brad can use both types. Yeah. Um, so I know he did a spawn as well with the, the um, you know the type that we're not allowed to use to see how those would act in his water mm -hmm. um, compared to you know, ours, which are really coming from a, a different environment. Yeah. Well, I, 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 it just dawned on me, we were talking about seed and hatcheries and I, I really failed to mention that there's, you know, another player in all this and that, they, you know, they are working on, um, potentially a, a hatchery that could provide seed. I'm not really sure logistically how that, how it works, but, um, the Palacios Marine Agriculture Research, um, organization, um, you know, they, they, they have the, they're, they're constructing a hatchery facility and I, oh, it's under construction already. You no, know, they're cutting dirt. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they're pouring cement yet, but they are working to, um, to, to, to build that, that hatchery piece and they've hired staff to, to run it. And, um, I, you know, because they are a, um, uh, agricultural research organization, I, I don't, I, I think they can provide, they can, they can sell seed mm -hmm. to private individuals, I believe. So they're working on that process as well. Um, 
but it, it would be nice to to have other additional um, sources, yes. other players in, in the game because you know this thing. It's going to take off. It's just making sure that your your hatchery construction and and every, you know your nursery grow out, your flupsies and everything, all the other things that that requires to get you seed are happening concurrent with the expansion of of these farms. And so we have two permitted, one that just got permitted or is about to be permitted. I know there's another one. I saw there's another one pending on pen, that. Yeah. So that's Sorry. four, which is great, mm-hmm. um, and and we we definitely want to see want to see more of these things. Do you have any advice for anybody considering jumping into this? I mean, you've kind of already talked about some of the lessons you've learned, but is there anything that like just really stood out to you? It's like, oh man, if I had known that, then um, I'd, I'd do it a little bit different. Um. You know, there's nothing I would do differently. You know, I went into this knowing you have your known unknowns that you can plan for and your unknown unknowns that you just have no idea what could happen. And so my advice would basically be, you know, you have to be ready to pivot at any second. Um, Something could be working and all of a sudden it's not and you need to figure out why and how to fix it. Um, So every... Every week we're dealing with a new, either a logistical issue or a seed issue. Um, So it's definitely something that you have to be ready to try a bunch of different things to find out what works. Um, I would say don't go into this thinking that you know everything and that you're going to put your seed in and everything's going to go perfectly. I I think that it really takes a farm a couple years to figure out what works best for them. Um, that's a good point. You know, I, I think a lot of people that see this, they really like, oh, I could do that. That sounds really interesting. And I think their vision of it is something you go out on the weekends, check on your cages um, for about three hours, and then go wade fishing down the shoreline or go go uh, hit, you know, go back and, and, and have a cocktail. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm growing oysters out there. It's not like that at all. Not at all. <laughs> But that I think that is part of the percent, you know, at least in my talking to some people about mm-hmm. oyster farming, I get the sense that that's what they're thinking that it is. And, you know, some, I know some farmers who only have an acre and really don't have any employees. They just do it all themselves as kind of a side project. But I think any more than an acre, um, you know, you're going to need full staff and uh, you're going to have more logistical issues, you know. Once you get past an acre, it's not just a fun project. It's something that you yeah. really have to focus on to, yeah. to make sure you're not wasting money on losing gear and oysters and everything like that. Well, you have four now, right? You said four employees. Yes. Working your, you know, a quarter of your nine points, you know, 10 acres. So, you know, two and a half acres roughly stocked with, and you have four employees doing that. So that should give some people the sense of scale that's going to be, that could be required mm-hmm. uh, for, for an operation. And I would say we could even use another employer. Well, I'm not even counting like you on the back and yes. your father yeah. on the back end, just running all the calls and spending all the time, you know, on the logistic piece of this. So right. yeah, it's, yeah. Cause you can't, ju- you can't just pull them out of the water and yeah. <laughs> off, you know, you, you've got to do a lot of cleaning and, and we do currently hand sorting, 
Um, so we are literally looking at each oyster that we harvest and we have a metal cut out where we just kind of measure it against there. Yeah. And then we just throw it in one bucket or throw it in another. Oh, so your tumbler is not sorting for for you? I would say 90% of the ones that come out of the end of the tumbler are ready to harvest. Mm -hmm. So we are only sorting through the ones that come out the end of the tumbler. Um, but even some of the ones that come out the end, you know, they're 2.2 inches. You know, they're not always going to be 2.5. Yeah. Um, and there is a, uh, a 5% rule where 5% mm -hmm. of what we can sell um, can be under two and a half inches, but uh, it's very, very illegal to sell. Um, oh, tell me, I know. Smaller oysters <laughs> than that. that. It's a felony. You can land yes. yourself in jail. Yeah. So it's definitely something that we're concentrating on very hard. Um, but, you know, once you start doing a couple harvests and looking at them, you can mostly just tell by looking at them you know okay so i'm glad you brought that up and i'm going to diverge because this is something that you know we've um you may not have known all this but you know we advocate cca advocated for str stronger um um enhanced penalties for keeping of undersized oysters because you know the a lot of times it seemed like the um some of the bad players in the uh, public harvest industry would would intentionally keep undersized oysters and get a fine and you know the the fine was negligible just like the you know you just mm -hmm. go harvest another sack of oysters to pay for your citation you know it was like a slap on the wrist type of thing um so we have enhanced enhanced penalties now but one of the arguments that we heard and sometimes continue to hear about that 5% rule is that it takes, you know, it's too hard. It takes too much time to measure and get down to that level of, of um, compliance. It's just, it's too much. We're processing too many oysters. In my experience, like at the hatchery, always having to measure fish or fingerlings coming out of our ponds, I would look at them and without measuring, just because I did it so much, know within about two millimeters what the length of that fish was. And it goes back to what you just said. I've done this now for, you know, many times, and I'm getting better and better at it. And I can almost look at it without having to measure and kind of know that it's a keeper or it's not. Right. And so that's, I think that's an important point to highlight not only because of the reasons that are personal to me but also for someone else getting into this seeing that five percent compliance and maybe like oh gosh I don't know if I can do that but really the more you do something the more repetitive it comes I mean your mind really begins to in your eyesight you really begin to it's almost just like instinct and you know right. just visually you can tell what what something is or what something isn't and and you can figure figure that out so anyways I kind of uh went off on a tangent there but that's uh, you no, made no, that point and I wanted to highlight it true. so I'm, um I would I would guess that every oyster farmer would agree with me yeah no I know for certain that they you know it's just like anything else you just get accustomed to doing something and and you become an expert at it and and um you know you are you are going becoming a professional farmer and that's part of the process is knowing your product and understanding um, 
what you're putting out there, what size it is, what shape it is, um, what presentation it's going to have. Mm-hmm. So thinking about that, um, you know, you, you've, you've provided product to the restaurants, have some, had some good feedback. Are you trying to um, create a certain, you know, a deep, deep cupped oyster? Um, or right now are you just working through – I mean, because obviously, more more you tumble, the more you work oyster. That you know, you could it'll it'll take on a more of a cupped shape. So, are you intentionally trying to shape your your product to make it stand out from everything else at the restaurants, or or is it just right now? Let's just figure the figure out the, the, the you know the farming process, and then we can work on the detail aspects of it. Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. We didn't really get our tumbler in time to start doing. A lot of tumbles early enough on uh, the seed we have currently so a lot of the oysters that we're harvesting have only been tumbled once or twice uh, twice usually being the time that we harvest them mm-hmm. we would like to try to move towards uh, doing three tumbles during the lifetime of the oyster uh, to get that deeper cup and um, you know help the, the shell develop better but um, we also just have so many oysters ready for harvest right now um, that we also want to get them out of the water before anything bad happens. So we technically could tumble them a third time and let them grow for two more weeks. Uh, But right now, if they're two and a half inches, we're basically pulling, we're just pulling Pulling them out to harvest. And they're still great quality, and they still taste delicious. Um, they just don't have as deep of a cup as some of the other oysters that are farmed have yet. Uh, we definitely want to move towards that, though, in the future. Yeah. And so you've, you've had your own oysters. Describe the flavor. I would say they're very briny, um, like your typical uh, Texas oyster. Um, it's uh, a little bit of a buttery taste when you chew it, mm-hmm. um, and I think they're delicious, you know. And I, uh, I have a lot of people that have, a lot of my friends and family have kind of followed this whole process and did not understand at all that these are not going to look like your wild Gulf oysters. And they kept telling me, Hannah, you know. No one wants these giant oysters outside of Texas. Everyone wants the petite ones. And I kept telling people, you know, these are going to be petite. They're going to look very different. And I had a a, a tasting party for about 30 friends, and everyone was absolutely shocked about how they looked. They were – everyone was saying, I cannot believe these are Texas oysters. Um, so that part has been really cool, too. So even them not knowing that, you know, we didn't do three tumbles on it and them yeah, yeah. seeing it. And they they knew. They could tell visually tell that these did not come off the bottom of yes. the bay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's fun. I bet that was pretty rewarding. I mean, for, it was. to have those that positive feedback from those people that are close to you, that's cool. It's definitely been a very cool experience over the past month, too. Um, have our oysters actually going out into restaurants and, and people eating them after almost two years of work um, and not knowing, you know, when this point would come or how many we would have at this point. Yeah. But, so um, have you gone, when you know, and it was at State of Grace or some other location, have you gone and uh, 
like looked at the menu like I did that. <laughs> I am uh, actually planning on going to La Lucha tonight. Okay. So that'll be my first time seeing them on the menu while I'm there. Take some pictures. I definitely will. Post it on the Instagram. <laughs> so talk about how can how if people want to follow you, you know you guys and your process, uh, where do they where do they find you? So you can find us on Instagram at uh, Barrier Beauties. And uh, we also have Facebook, but I'm mostly just active on Instagram. Um, you know, I show a lot of our processes of tumbling. Um, you can go on there and see what they looked like from a very young age. Um, so that's how you can find us on social media. Um, as far as restaurants right now, we are selling at Pier 6 in San Leon, um, State of Grace and La Lucha in Houston as well as uh, Blue Horizon Seafood Dealer. And that's, uh, go back to the Instagram barrier, like Barrier Island, B-A-R-R-I-E-R underscore beauties, B-E-A-U-T-I-E-S. That's correct. (laughs) You got a new follower. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Is there anything, if you feel like we need to, we'll put a cap on this, but is there anything you feel like we need to highlight that we, you know, that we maybe, that we maybe missed during the conversation? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot. Yeah, I was, um, I, th- I know we hit all the points that, that, that I had sent you that I wanted to, wanted to talk about. Um, I, again, you guys are brave. I mean, you truly do Thank have you. the entrepreneurial spirit to, um, step out and, and do this in Texas. And we'll, we're going to learn a lot from, from what you know the first handful of farms are doing what has worked and what didn't if um for me not being a farmer but knowing a little bit and having some experience with some farmers i mean the the number one most important thing that has been conveyed to me always has been site selection would you would you agree with that is there something else that you you know site selection and i mean Site selection and gear. Um, I think that you really have to shape your gear around your site. Um, So you can pick a gear that's easy to use, but if it doesn't work on your site, that doesn't make it easy to use anymore. Yeah. Um, But definitely site selection, you know, really doing your research on salinity levels and um, have oysters grown there in the past? You know, that was a big thing for us in East Galveston look, Bay. Historically, look at yeah. they've produced millions and millions and millions of oysters over the years. Um, but that had died down due to all the hurricanes destroying a lot of the natural reefs. Um, so for us, you know, that was a huge part of it. Um, we also really we're looking for something with shallow water. It's actually a lot deeper than all of our studies showed. (laughs) So we had originally planned on being able to get in the water and like flip the oyster cages ourselves, um, which we cannot get in that water and work the gear at all. Um, So definitely really doing your your research on the site, um, but still knowing that all the research you can do, it's, it's the ocean. 
and <laughs> conditions change yeah, constantly. You can't control everything. <laughs> yes. For sure. Yeah. So I, um, site selection and, and gear, I would say, go hand in hand of really making the farm successful. And also, you, you got to be out there every day working it almost every day, really. About five days a week we're out there. If you're not staying on top of splitting the cages and um, cleaning the cages, uh, crabs get in there, you know, they start to eat your oysters. Uh, the oysters don't grow as fast if you're not splitting them to give enough room. So, you know, it's very important to stay on top of all that. You know, you, you really can't just put them in the water and, and check on them every other week or so. Yeah. Well, one more question just for, this is personal for me because I like fishing. Have you seen a lot of fish or, or any, any other aquatic life around your structure, around your, your gear? Sheep's head picking at the poles or, or, or drum working in and around the... Um, so it is pretty murky water, so it's hard to see okay. kind of what's underneath there. Um, it was really cool, though, when we were installing the farm. There were about a dozen dolphins out there with us all day. I think they were very attracted to the sound of um, oh, hammering, hammering yeah. the anchor into yeah. the ground. You know, they were right next to the guys in the water installing them, going, you know, touching uh -huh. them, going past. They found it very, very interesting. Um, so it is supposed, these farms are supposed to increase fishing and um, fish populations in the area as well because they're attracted to the, um, the cleaner water. Yeah. But... Um, we haven't personally gone out there to fish. We well, have, have you seen, seen anybody drifting people. through or drifting by? Yes. So there are, we do get quite a few people who drive by and everyone is very interested in what is going on there. And, you know, we just explain it to them and, you know, tell them it's supposed to help the fishing in the area because where we're located is a spot where a lot of fishermen do mm -hmm. go. Um, so we, we tell them, you know, it is supposed to help the fishing, but, you know, just please be cautious because there is all this submerged gear. Yeah. So um, we have thorough ways for people to pass through. But if it's possible, please go around the site. Right. Um, you know, we don't want your boat to break and we don't want our lines to break. Yeah. Um, so overall, like we've seen a huge support from the local community. Everyone is very excited about it. Um, there's only been maybe one or two negative comments that I've heard, um, but it's a, a very small minority. And, you know, when we lose our bags, they do have tags on them that uh -huh. say our names. And we get calls every time we lose a bag. People find one, and they want to call you, and they want to let you know and yeah. help you out. Um, and also, they're interested in finding out what is this bag of, of uh -huh. shells? <laughs> Especially when they're smaller, people have no idea what they are. Right, right. Yeah, you know, a bunch of single oysters, tiny little things in a bag. It, yeah, it doesn't look like exactly like the end product. Mm -hmm. So, well, I'm a staunch supporter, and uh, you'll never hear any complaints from me or the majority of our our membership because this is this is the way of that you know we really need to. Uh, look into to like I said earlier expand opportunities for for people to get involved in something that's perhaps you know less destructive to the, the public natural reefs um, 
Last question. I could, I, I really could go on forever and ever, and I appreciate you being patient. Yeah, with me. no, no problem. There's so much to talk about. Yeah, really. yeah. <laughs> now, um, one of the concerns from I heard from you know, people, commercial oystermen in in certain areas of the coast, are like, man, that's never going to work here because you, somebody's going to go out and steal your gear. They're going to take your oysters. Have you had any poaching or had any problems with that? Zero. And we actually have a camera out there, um, so I can look at the site. Um, you know, it doesn't record, so if someone did go on there and steal something, I can't go back and look. Um, so it's just a live feed type yes, thing? yeah. Um, it, but we've it, never it, seen anyone going through our site or trying to get one of the bags or anything. So we did think that might be an issue, mm -hmm. um, but luckily we've had no issues at all with that and we're in a pretty public space yeah you yeah know, you can it's you definitely can more us. public than 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 brad's over in copano uh-huh they are a lot more protected yeah which is fun i mean even he has have having issues and 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 um trial and error process with wave energy and mm -hmm. all we have that. very high tidal action in our area which i think is helped the oysters a lot that is huge yeah having where you're where you are and the amount of water that is moving through helps tremendously mm -hmm. um and, and our salinity levels stay pretty high they're around 16 to 21 typically um which is what we were looking for you know when yeah. we were looking for the site um, so that really helps them grow as well they're they're very very happy oysters oh no that's that is that's you've got it all you got good tidal movement great salinities probably would like a few smaller waves but <laughs> we do have a lot of trouble um going out to work the farm and winds that are higher than 15 miles an hour because we um we use clips um that are attached to ropes to kind of hook our boat onto the line so that we stay still while we're yeah. bending over the boat to pick up the bags or put them um, back on. So when there are high waves, it is dangerous for us to have the guys go out there and do that mm -hmm. um, because you're really rocking and rolling out there. Yeah. Um, so we uh, definitely take advantage of every good weather day that we can. And, um, you know, we're trying to get out there earlier in the day now that it's getting it's hot. hotter and hotter. Mm -hmm. um, regulations change about how long you have to get the oysters into refrigeration right um during the summer months it goes down to um i think just hours it's yeah. very short right now window. i believe it's three hours yeah. so um you know we're still working on getting that process down as well um it takes us about three hours right now so when it drops down one more hour we're probably going to need, you know, another person helping us out then as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of little details and things to work through logistically. Every day something new comes up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's a new rule from Texas Parks and Wildlife or a new issue with the gear or, you know, a spawn not happening correctly. It's, it's something new every day, but that's what makes it exciting. Too. Yeah, yeah. You're always problem solving, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. I've, like I said, I could go on and on and, and just spend um, an entire afternoon with somebody talking about oysters and oyster farming. And 
um, you're, you're what you guys, like I said earlier, you guys are the pioneers and uh, braving those unknown waters and all of this. And we, we, we owe you a lot and appreciate what you're doing, not only for Thank just you. the industry, but for the ecosystem too. So. Thank, thank you, Shane. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Absolutely. Thanks.